Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Charlie Gibson, and we welcome you to what I think is a special edition of The Bookcase, because it's getting to be about that time of year, Kate. And I am Kate Gibson, and it already is that time of the year. I feel like it gets to be that time of the year now after Halloween, like, you know, November 1st. It is that time of the year, and it lasts now until, I don't know, Valentine's Day. People start pushing the Christmas decorations earlier and earlier. But the reason we're doing today's show... We're going to talk to six different books, well, five different booksellers. Kate and I are going to handle one category. But everybody at the last minute is thinking about what books should I give to people. You know, when when you don't have any ideas at all, the best idea is a book. And indeed, I have found in my life that I always so appreciate the book because the giver has obviously given thought to what kind of book I would like. Well, what I loved about our tree growing up is there was the tree and then there was the mass of presents, but then bookending, to coin a phrase, on either side of the Christmas tree was a pile of individually wrapped books because you and mom used to individually wrap the titles. Yes, we would give usually each of you four or five books. And we would wrap each one individually. It just, it it spreads out the present. It spreads out the fun. (laughs) But we thought uh, it would be good for all of you. Stop the podcast for a minute because you're going to need a pencil and paper. If you have one handy, great. If you don't, stop where you're listening and and then come back to us because we're going to have specific books recommended by the specific experts. And we're going to start with adult fiction. When I think of fiction, I don't mean adult fiction. I don't mean Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever. Which he read. But I'm, yeah, you keep hitting I me do. with it. I do. I don't think anybody, I don't think any of our listeners need to move past that fact that you read it. I but, think we can discuss it again and again. No, 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 no. <laughs> but, but these are books, the best fiction for adults that has been out this year. Katie and I have our favorites, but we'll see what is recommended by Mitchell Kaplan. He is the owner of Books and Books a series of bookstores down in the Miami area, and we talked to him about what adult fiction he thought would be the best to give this Christmas season. Mitchell Kaplan of many locations of Books and Books in Florida, here to give us some fiction recommendations. Take it away, Mitchell. Well, Kate, this was a signal year for fiction. So many good books from so many talented writers. Here are a few that I found particularly striking as we enter the gift-giving season. For the person on your list who likes slim but moving and beautifully written stories, there's Julie Oksuka's Swimmers. I don't want to say too much about the story, but just know that it's about a group of recreational swimmers who encounter a mysterious crack at the bottom of their community pool and quickly evolves into a heart-rendering story. Julie is the author of the award-winning Buddha in the Attic, another spare but empathetically charged read. And I've been a fan of Russell Banks's work for, God, almost 40 years. His continental drift still resonates after all these years. And he's got a new one. It's called The Magic Kingdom. And it opened my eyes to a buried episode of Florida history, a time in the late 19th century when there was a Shaker community near where Disney World is now, a Shaker community rocked by scandal. 
as Margaret Atwood says, the magic kingdom confronts our longings for paradise, also the inner serpents that are to be found in all such enchanted gardens. This is for anyone on your list who enjoys historical novel, but not just any historical novel, one that thoughtfully raises questions that are equally relevant today. And all of us booksellers and readers know that it's a treat to discover the work of a first-time writer. Jonathan Escoffrey's collection of interconnected short stories, If I Survive You, is a revelation. He tells the story of a Jamaican family trying to make its way as new immigrants to South Florida, but his stories are universal in this multicultural world of ours. NPR puts it another way. They say, If I Survive You is an extraordinary debut collection, an intensively granular yet panoramic depiction of what it's like to try to make it or not, in this kaleidoscopic madhouse of a country. I find Jonathan to be an important new writer, and If I Survive You is for young and old alike, and for anyone who wants to be in on the discovery of a writer, we'll be hearing lots of in the future. And I dare anyone not to read Signal Fires by Danny Shapiro in just one sitting. A family experiences a tragedy that they don't talk about, and the consequences determining the heart of the novel. As she does in her nonfiction, in Signal Fires, Danny explores familial love and the inevitability of loss. It's a hopeful novel, though. We're introduced to the Wilfs, Waldo and the Shankmans, families that anyone who reads Signal Fires won't soon forget. But I want to end with Trust by Hernan Diaz. It's the one that I think is my favorite of the year, Hernan uses a unique structure to tell the story of Benjamin and Helen Rask. He's a legendary Wall Street tycoon, and she's the daughter of eccentric aristocrats. It's the 1920s. The stock market is about to go in free fall. Hernan uses four distinct literary devices to find the truth of their lives, and in doing so, explores the idea of truth itself. I love what Sigrid Nunez says about trust. Sigrid says, though set in a historical New York, trust speaks to matters of the most urgent significance to the present day. Money, power, class, marital, and filial relations, the roles played by trust and betrayal in human affairs. Diaz's development of his chosen themes is deeply insightful. Cleverly constructed and rich in surprises, this splendid novel offers serious ideas and serious pleasures on every beautifully composed page. What's cool about this is I read it in Galley at the beginning of the year. It continued to be one of my favorite, and I'm so pleased now at the end of the year to see it cropping up in almost everyone's 10 best list. And I also thought just as a kind of quick, these quickies, I would give you some quick titles of books that I really did really like. George Saunders has a new collection called Liberation Day, and we all love George Saunders. Claire Keegan has written Foster. She's an Irish writer that I've come to admire greatly. Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperfield, kind of written in the style of Charles Dickens, is one that everyone seems to be liking. Geraldine Brooks's Horse is a book that I read, another historical novel, and Geraldine Brooks does it again. It's really compelling and one that everyone ought to check out. There's also another young writer, Namwali Surpel. She wrote this book called The Furrows. Really, really affecting. 
And then Nobel Prize winner Louise Gluck, who we know as a, a poet, has written a very slim, beautiful novel called Marigold and Rose. And this is one that I would suggest to for one of your more literary friends. People that love me and like me that are listening to this, Signal Fires is on my list. Check with my husband. I haven't read the Danny Shapiro and it's on my list. If I Survive You, I read, I loved it. I also thought it was a really interesting examination of the definition of masculinity. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's definitely. And he also raises issues of poverty that you don't mm -hmm. see in a novel very often. And he raises them really realistically. Yeah. yeah, masculinity and what it takes. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you about trust. Hernan Diaz is an amazing talent. It's been a very rich year for fiction. You know, and again, like you, these are books that I read. I mean, I'm a little like Lucy in the candy store. So I'm surrounded every time I walk into the bookshop with thousands of books that I ought to be reading. There are so many others. If you, If I had read you know, another 20 different ones, I might have had 10 different suggestions. Thank you so much for joining us, Mitchell Kaplan. We will talk again in the new year. Have a wonderful, wonderful holiday season. I hope you sell a ton. And thank you so much for these great recommendations. It's very same to you, Caden. Please give Charlie my utmost best too. I absolutely will. Take care. Mitchell Kaplan and Books and Books giving you his adult fiction recommendation. And we think there is no greater nonfiction institution out there than politics and prose in Washington, D.C. Bradley Graham's talked to us before, and he has some terrific titles that run the gambit of nonfiction spectrum this year. So take it away, Bradley. There really is no better place to go than politics and prose in Washington, D.C., a Washington institution on Connecticut Avenue. Brad Graham is the owner, one of the owners of politics and prose, and so we thought he'd be the perfect person to make the suggestions for nonfiction books, if you're thinking of some for this Christmas holiday. Brad? Well, hi, and, and thanks very much for the opportunity to talk about some of my favorite nonfiction selections for 2022. There are five I'm going to mention, a memoir, a biography, a book about an important aviation event, another about the civil rights movement, and one about women and the law. The memoir is an eloquent work called Lost and Found by New Yorker writer Katherine Schultz who examines what it's like to lose a loved one and to fall in love and reflects on the profound transformations set in motion by both universal occurrences. The section on loss centers around the death of Schultz's father. The section on finding focuses on her romance with the woman she ended up marrying, a romance that coincided with the passing of Schultz's father. But even more than a record of overlapping personal grief and love, the book is a sublime philosophical reckoning of these seemingly opposite experiences, filled with penetrating observations and insightful forays into literature, poetry, and art. The biography I want to highlight is by David Marinus, who's previously written acclaimed books about such famous sports figures as Roberto Clemente and Vince Lombardi. In Path Lit by Lightning, Marinus tells the story of another legendary sports figure, Jim Thorpe, whose athletic achievements, including Olympic gold medals, gave way to a later life troubled by alcohol, broken marriages, and financial distress. So much about Thorpe's life has become enveloped in myth, which Marinus expertly picks apart, separating fact from fiction, delving into issues of race, celebrity, and sports culture, and producing a nuanced, insightful, and poignant portrait 
of an exceptional 20th century figure. As Marinus explains at the outset, he resisted the temptation to portray Thorpe's story as a tragedy, choosing to frame it instead as one of perseverance against the odds. Next, I'd highly recommend a riveting story about a long ago airplane race. It started one morning in October 1919, when 15 planes departed from San Francisco and flew east, while a contingent of 48 planes took off from Long Island and headed west. The aircraft were competing in a contest conceived by Brigadier General Billy Mitchell, a flamboyant World War I hero and air power visionary who wanted to galvanize public and congressional support for aviation at a time when the United States was rapidly demobilizing after the Great War. John Lancaster, a journalist and private pilot himself, recounts the coast-to-coast competition in vivid detail in The Great Air Race, with rudimentary flight instruments, few permanent airfields, and no air traffic control system to speak of. The pilots, who were flying frail, open cockpit biplanes, faced many dangers. Only eight planes completed the full journey, but the event proved a milestone in the development of commercial aviation, and Lancaster deftly portrays the eccentric cast of racers in his engrossing and entertaining history. From aviation, we turn to civil rights and a very original new appraisal of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s, written by Tom Ricks. He's a former Pentagon correspondent and author of numerous military books, and he draws on his knowledge of military strategy and tactics in providing a fresh framework for viewing the achievements and difficulties of the civil rights effort of half a century ago. The book is called Waging a Good War, and in it, Ricks sees lots of parallels between the way wars are fought, the strategizing, planning, recruiting, training, logistics, and so on, and the way the civil rights movement unfolded. By applying this military template in a look back at the mid-20th century struggle against segregation, Ricks shows insightfully and persuasively that it's possible to reach a deeper understanding of what transpired then, how the civil rights movement was conceived, the tactics that were used, and the thinkers who were behind it. My final pick is Lady Justice by Dahlia Lithwick, senior legal correspondent at Slate. She considers 2016 a sort of high watermark for women in the legal system in America. That was the year the Supreme Court, in a Texas case, struck down an attempt to place restrictions on the delivery of abortion services. Then Donald Trump got elected, and the progress that women had made began to unravel, a trend underscored last June by the Supreme Court's decision to undo Roe v. Wade. What Lithwick describes in her book is a series of efforts by women lawyers that constitute a kind of resistance movement. Examples include Sally Yates, who is acting U.S. Attorney General, refused to sign off on Trump's Muslim travel ban. Roberta Kaplan, a prominent commercial litigator who sued the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville and Stacey Abrams, who secured the voting rights of many people in Georgia. Combining narrative profiles with analysis, Lithwick highlights the heroic work of these and other women to save American democracy. So that's my nonfiction list for 2022. Happy holidays, everyone, and 
Happy reading. That's perfect. That's perfect, Brad. <laughs> Your newspaper background comes right to the fore. I love what you did. I love what you did. And Kate, Katie's got a huge smile on her face as well. It felt like, honestly, it felt like my father and I just pulled up a bunch of easy chairs to an old-time radio and just sort of sat down and listened to our favorite radio program. Bradley Graham, a politics and prose in Washington, D.C., an institution in the city, really, on Upper Connecticut Avenue and always worth a visit. You can tell from the way he took his five minutes that we allotted him that he's a former newspaper man. Bradley Graham and his wife both worked for the Washington Post. They decided they'd love to own a bookstore, bought politics and prose, but you can tell in newspaper fashion, he wrote it out with a lead and running down the five nonfiction books that he thought would be good for Christmas. Yeah, he gave us some good copy. <laughs> yes, he did. He did. He gave us some good copy. So from nonfiction, factual books to mysteries. Everybody likes mysteries at Christmas. I think it's a time where, if it's possible, you'd like to turn your brain off and just read something for fun. And I think mysteries usually are fun. So we went to our expert, Otto Penzler, owner of the Mysterious Bookshop in New York City. Take it away, Otto. I'd love to talk about some of my, I'd like to talk about 50 books, but I understand that we have a limited amount of time. So let me start with Michael Connolly, his newest book called Desert Star. Of all of the writers that I've read, and I've been reading crime fiction for 60 years, I have never known one who maintained the level of excellence that Mike has for this many books. He's done more than 30 books now. His Harry Bosch, Hieronymus Bosch series character is one of the great inventions of contemporary crime fiction. L.A. policeman, who has moved around, Connolly decided early on that he was going to keep his character aging at the same rate that Mike was aging. He had to retire from the police department and then has been called back first for something called cold cases. And in this book, he brings a relatively new character, Renee Ballard, who has been in five books now, a female, obviously a female member of the LA police department. And they collaborate on this in this book, Desert Star. And one of the things that's really fascinating about it is that she brings him back as a volunteer to work on a case that is his white whale. It's the case that's been bugging him for 20 years. This man who in murdered an entire family and they start working on this as a cold case. Michael Connolly, one of the greats. My second book to show you, Louise Penny. And I have to make a confession which is that I am in love with this woman. She is the nicest, most endearing human being on the planet. It used to be Mary Higgins Clark, who was known as St. Mary in my house, but Mary's no longer with us, sadly. So Louise Penny has come along to take her place in my heart. And her stories are generally set, mainly set in a little town. It looks like an idyllic little town called Three Pines. And her policeman is named Gamash, who handles these brutal crimes in this beautiful little town. The fascinating thing about this, and this fascinates me on every short story or movie or novel, is when you find something old, and this was a 160-year-old room that had been bricked up, and it's opened, and they find things find stuff in this room that changes things that are happening today. And I find that endlessly captivating to find something that no one expected to find 
from the past. My next favorite book is Death and the Conjurer. Even though it's a recent book, it seems like a classic from the golden age of mystery fiction. The golden age of detective stories was the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, the era between the two world wars. But Death and the Conjurer is set in England in the 1930s, I think 1938, and it's the classic setup of a Scotland Yard inspector who is baffled and brings in an amateur help. This is the basic plot of virtually every Golden Age book. The man that the Scotland Yard inspector brings in is a retired stage magician who comes because these crimes are impossible. They're locked room mysteries and impossible crimes that could not possibly have happened. And it is beyond the ken of a normal detective to deal with this. And so it takes a magician to come along and solve what is evidently an impossible crime. A man murdered in a room that is locked on all sides. The windows are sealed. Tom Mead is the author. I'm sorry, I should mention his name. Here's the most extraordinary writer in the mystery world, or indeed in any world, Anthony Horowitz. And now he has this series where it is so, I don't even know how to describe it. I'm, I'm at a loss for words. The major character, the major detective is Anthony Horowitz in his own book. He's got a character that he works with who is a real detective. I keep forgetting his name. I'm sorry. I, I forget everything. I'm, I already said I'm 80, so you have to cut me some slack. But he, he, for three books now, he's worked with another detective who he brings in and they solve crimes together. Well, in The Twist of a Knife, the new one, the chief murder suspect is Anthony Horowitz. They argued in the last book and they decided that they're never going to work again. But now he's under suspicion. And so he calls his friend and say, well, can, you, can we work on this together? There is no limit to what he does. And he also wrote one of the best James Bond pastiches ever. How can this guy have this much talent? <laughs> My last book is something that could be a little bit obvious. It has to be Christmas. This is Christmas time. We're talking about Christmas gift books. So this is called Silent Nights. It's a collection of short stories, all of which involve Christmas. What is remarkable is the number of books, novels, and short stories that are set at Christmas time. What is it about Christmas that makes everybody want to kill other people? You got a bad gift? I mean, like, get over it. You don't have to start killing people, but they're charming. And half the Christmas mysteries that I've ever read, and I've read hundreds, more than 500 for the book that I edited, and most of them are, in fact, truly charming. So read a Christmas mystery and give one as a gift. Nothing better. Those are great recommendations. And actually, I would tell readers that not only was this most recent Michael Connolly very good, but I thought The Dark Hours, which was the Harry Bosch novel before this one, which really talks about the police force in the post-George Floyd days and really does it brilliantly, isn't just pro-cop, isn't just anti-cop. It's a really interesting, nuanced discussion while there's a really entertaining mystery going on. Yeah. But I, I was really impressed with the way he handled it in that last book. They're just relentlessly entertaining and smart and accurate. You know, but Connolly has best friends who are cops 
and lawyers. The last two books were just terrific. Otto Penzler, thank you so much. These are great recommendations, and I'm going to put a few of them on my list for people on my list. So thank you so much. This was terrific. You're welcome. They are great recommendations. <laughs> They're great books, really. Enjoy. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we don't have a podcast uh, because we don't like listening to ourselves talk. We like to listen to ourselves talk. And we were feeling just, you know. We like listening to ourselves talk too much. Yeah, exactly. And we gave way too much airtime to other people in the show. So let's steal some back for ourselves. We will talk about coffee table books that came out over the last year because they make elegant gifts. They make terrific host and hostess gifts for the bizarre dinner party that you're not quite sure why you got invited to them. But there you are at the front door. But don't you, when you go to somebody's house for dinner or just to drop in for a visit or whatever. If there's a book on the coffee table, don't you sort of make a judgment from that? Oh, absolutely. Oh, this is what they're interested oh, in, absolutely. or this is what they're like. It says a lot about your personality, what you will buy. And also, if you're giving a coffee table book this year, you think a lot in that case about what kind of interests the person that you're giving it to has, and you will try to match that. But also what kind of interest perhaps you want to reflect to the outside world, because, you know, you may find The Simpsons really interesting, but I doubt you're going to be like, look at my great new coffee table book on The Simpsons. You can also spend a lot of money you on can. a coffee table you book. You can spend a lot of money on coffee There are books. coffee table books that are two, three hundred dollars. None of these reach that. None of these reach. None of those that. reach that stratosphere. Yeah, we don't want you. We don't want you going broke, giving out to any of these coffee table books. <laughs> coffee table works. It's worth taking out a loan for. But we're going to start. We're going <laughs> to. These are these are called second mortgage coffee yeah, exactly, table books. Exactly. But we're going to start with a book that's very timely. It's called Football, Designing the Beautiful Game, and it's all about football. No Americans, not with the pigskin. 
football, like the World Cup this year. There was a terrific exhibit at the Museum of Design in London last year, or in 2022, I should say, all about the concepts of design that influence football, the stadiums, the jerseys, literally the soccer ball. And this book was meant to accompany that and had some beautiful photography. And it's very timely for folks that got obsessed this year, which I think you did a little. I did get a little. I still don't understand fully soccer. I'm always interested in whether there's more passes backward than forward. But, and there really is, you know, in a 90-minute game, there's at least three and a half minutes of excitement. But there is no question, I don't mean to be cynical about it, there's no question that the world was captivated, is captivated, by the World Cup that's going on. When Morocco beats Spain, that's a big darn deal. And the United States, which has not really embraced soccer, we got got involved in this men's team. And of course, the women's team, I love. Yes, I know you uh, do. I love Mia Hamm, yes. Brittany Chastain, Carly Lloyd. I just loved all of those players. Yes. Amy Wambaugh. I just thought they were terrific. And one of my treasures is that I have, when I was on GMA, the 1999 women's team came on the show. And I got an autographed ball, which I have up on the shelf, and I treasure that. And unfortunately, the signatures are beginning to fade because they were written in uh, in Magic Marker. Well, and also you hold that ball so close to you. When you go home, you sit there and you hold it. I do not. (laughs) But signatures are beginning to fade. So if Mia Hammond and Brittany Chastain and all of those players would like to drop by the house or resign the ball, I would be highly appreciative. (laughs) Next book, which I think is a really interesting one. Kate? All right. So we're going to talk a little bit about art. There are a lot of art lovers out there, and there are lots of coffee table books with art. And you could do a lot of, you know, your Matisse and your Van Goghs and your Monets, and those are all beautiful. However, one of the books that really struck us this year, and it has a beautiful cover image, is called African Art Now. This beautiful book of amazing art, and it accompanies profiles of Africa's leading artists. It reflects Africa's past. It projects into its future. It's a great book for art enthusiasts and art students. And as I say, it's got a beautiful cover. This is one, if I walked into your house, I would definitely pick up and start leafing through. Also for the music lover, this is a terrific one. The Philosophy of Modern Song by, nobody better to pick this out and write it, by Bob Dylan, The Philosophy of Modern Song. And it contains Dylan's thoughts on modern music. And he picks out 60 different songs. Of course, there's Elvis and Ray Charles and Pete Seeger and you name it. And Dylan, who is a Nobel Prize winner for his lyrics, which I thought was inspired actually by the Nobel Committee because Dylan is really a poet oh, yeah. in many respects. Anyway, Dylan sat down with some of his favorite songs And he wrote some terrific essays which analyzed those works. Variety said it's absolutely one of the best books about popular music ever written. And the book contains a lot of curated photographs and riffs and notes by Dylan. But basically, it's his thoughts on 60 different songs. And to be honest with you, I'm going to buy it. Uh, Are you? Yeah, I am. He is kind of a guru. I mean, he's the guru of our times. I'm also told, by the way, that this is a terrific audiobook, although I can't, you know, Elvis wrote this song, <laughs> and it's really good. Anyway, sorry. I apologize to Mr. Dylan, who's very, very talented and whom I should not, whose voice I should not insult in any way, shape, or form. And the last one we would recommend is for Space Nuts. All of you out there know who you are. Uh, this is a book called The Space Shuttle. And it goes through every single one of the space shuttle flights. There's good photography. And as you might imagine, there's some extraordinary photography taken from the shuttle. But also what I've always been interested in is the interior 
of those space shuttles. What was it like? It had an airplane form, and if I had been on it, I probably would have been given row 17 middle seat. Next uh, to the crying baby. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it does, it does. It goes over every single one of the shuttle flights. It was an extraordinary program. It seems a little bit like a dinosaur now, sort of dated. Oh, gosh, I hope not. But it was a very interesting concept. Some people still argue that the space shuttle, the idea of reusable shuttles was not a good one and that we didn't really. But this makes the case for what the shuttle was able to do and shows you how it did it. So that's the book, The Space Shuttle. And that's our list of coffee table books that we recommend to you for this Christmas season. And we'll impress your guests at all of your, you know, Open houses. And if you don't have a coffee table, let's move to the next topic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. If you don't have a coffee table, one hopes you have a kitchen and you know how to use it, potentially, especially given this time of year with guests coming in and out of your house. We thought that it would be important to put cookbooks on our Christmas giving list this year. So we talked to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books in San Francisco, who's going to give us her recommendations for 2022. Celia Sack, we enjoyed having you so much in the bookcase for your own show that we did. It was our Thanksgiving show. We couldn't wait to have you back on our buying episode to talk about what you're excited about for gift giving for people who are looking for cookbooks on their Christmas list. So take it away. Okay, I'm ready. Uh, kind of. This year, we were blessed with so many great cookbooks. It's all, It's very, very hard to choose just a few. But the nice thing about giving gifts and giving cookbooks as gifts is that you really get to show the person that you are thinking about them specifically and that you understand them, even if you don't. So for those people, there's always the dog right next door at our pet store. Um, But generally, it shows that you are really thinking about what they love. And in that way, there are some wonderful, wonderful books out this year. One of my favorites is Walks of Life. I think that's going to get my top billing. It's by a family, a whole family of people, Bill, Judy, Sarah, and Caitlin Leong. Two parents, two daughters who were grown up. The parents are from China and the kids grew up in New Jersey with them. So they're first generation immigrants. They all do a blog together. That's really wonderful about their food, whether it's Chinese American or traditional Chinese. And the way that they talk with each other, the way that they discuss the, you know, what they're going to make is so fun. And it just takes you on this whole journey of learning. So you're along the ride with them and it's wonderful. For somebody who has a sweet tooth, I would go with What's for Dessert by Claire Saffetz. I just got to do an event with her and met her in San Francisco, and she's so lovely and honest and warm, and that is exactly how her desserts read. They're sort of classic American desserts with sometimes with a twist, and they've just got wonderful recipes that you can dig into. They're not overly complicated, but they're not under complicated. They're just right in the middle. It's perfect. For somebody who's thinking about world events and wants to show that they're smart and know know about what's going on in the world, there's Budmo, which is a Ukrainian cookbook, very thoughtful to give at this time of year, any time of this past year. Ukrainian food is really wonderful and cookbooks really bring us together as a community, as citizens of the world. And Budmo 
I feel like, you know, make that borscht and you guys are going to be happy around the table, but also it's a way to show an appreciation for that country that's under such a difficult strain this year. Okay, I have two more. Diasporican, which is also a hybrid of, it's a first generation book by a woman who is Puerto Rican descent. And she worked with her mom, who's Puerto Rican on this book. So it's Puerto Rican and American. It's fun food. It's great for a hot day. Make some pineapple rum and, and just, you know, eat a, eat a fried thing and <laughs> it's going to be delicious. <laughs> and if you can get a beach in there and some sand and water, that would be great too. And then lastly, because we should always have a good bartender book on our shelves. There's this new one by Lauren Moat called uh, Bartender's Guide to the World. And it's so fun. It's just drinks from all over the world. And there's nothing more celebratory than that. So those are my books. Those are my picks. And there's so many more to choose from. It's just hard to even, you know, it's like picking a favorite child. <laughs> but these are ones that I love for this year. Now, am I right in thinking that your wife runs a pet store? Yes, it's next now door. So, so, so can I ask you, do you guys throw to each other? Like when you find a customer that's just too difficult, you're like, fine, I can't yes. find you a cookbook. Can I interest you in a dog? Go next door. And then I would imagine she would say the same thing. I can't find you a dog. Can I interest you in a book in Chinese cooking? Please go next door. Like, <laughs> Well, the best is when we see somebody walking by, like they've spent all this time in my store not bought anything and then they go next door and I see them walking by with a bag from Noe Valley Bag Company. I'm like, gotcha anyway. <laughs> Going into my bank account, you don't even know. <laughs> Celia Sack, thank you ever so much. Thank you. We that. wish you a Merry Christmas you and too. a very prosperous holiday season in the store. All the best. Hey, Celia, Celia, thank you so much. Take care. Anytime. I'll I hope I get to talk to you again. Absolutely. Celia Sack of Omnivore Books in San Francisco, a bookstore devoted entirely to cookbooks, but also to books on food and drink. The last category may be the most important because I think every kid, every kid, don't you agree, Kate, should get a book for Christmas. Reading for kids, getting them out of their digital devices, getting them onto pages, so important. So we asked Justin Calusi Estes of the Little Shop of Stories in Decatur, Georgia. We asked him to break it down and give us recommendations in each age category. Uh, because as I say, every kid in every age category should be getting books for Christmas. Justin Calusi Estes. All right, Justin Calusi Estes from Little Shop of Stories had to bring you back to talk about what we should be buying kids and tweens and all of that this Christmas season. So go ahead, take it away, Justin. I wanted to start with picture books. So the first one may be well known to a lot of folks, but I still think that this is a great book, is Three Billy Goats Gruff. It's a telling of the famous folktale by Mac Barnett and John Clausen. But this is a retelling and it's just, it's clever, it's humorous. You know, it does all the things that kids want to see in terms of a funny, the bully getting their comeuppance, little animals like a tiny goat suddenly being able to pull one over on a troll. And the art is expressive and wonderful. The second one, The Mouse Who Carried a House on His Back, it's by Jonathan Stutzman. It's got this gorgeous cover that's die cut, and it's about a mouse who sets up his home in the middle of this field and different animals come up and are looking for things like shelter or food. 
and they say, you know, your house is small. So I know that you can't necessarily share, but I could really use a warm place to sleep or some food. And he says, come in. And visually, you see as each animal comes into his house, from the outside, it looks like more houses are being added. From the inside, it just appears to be bigger than they imagine. I just love it. The last picture book I wanted to mention is a book called Everything in Its Place. This is about a young girl named Nikki who's shy, who during recess, all the kids go outside and play recess, and she stays inside and helps shelf books in the library. And she actually is kind of a little wary and maybe even afraid of having to go out to recess because it's very chaotic and she doesn't necessarily want to interact with other kids in those ways. And her favorite thing is books and kind of the regular patterns of her life. And she goes after school to her mother's restaurant where there's a customer there who reads quite a bit. And she admires this woman. The woman also rides motorcycles. And she's like, wow, that seems kind of crazy and risky. And the woman says, I love challenges like that. And so when Nikki finds out that the library is going to be closed during recess for a bit because the librarian is going to a conference, she's at first very upset. But she takes inspiration from this woman and decides to challenge herself. I told you the plot, but the illustrations are really beautiful. There's a kind of collage aspect. Personally, I think picture books are for anyone, especially adults, but but anyone in there. The next age group, you were was sort of like younger, middle grade, that kind of chapter book age. One of the ones that we fall in love with here is Jasmine Warga's A Rover Story. And this is about a Mars rover that's sent to Mars to rescue another Mars rover that's there. It's self-aware and starts to develop some emotional responses to things. And, oh, my gosh, this is it's so Diane, one of the owners of Little Shop, talks about how it made her cry at the end. You come to understand something about what it means to be human and have human emotions and to things. It's sort of... um. I heard somebody compare it to The Martian, but for kids and if you fall in love with the character. <laughs> it's a, it sounds kind of like Wally in a way. Yeah, yeah, there is that quality to it. Yeah. Next one is a series that I read the first book of. 13 Witches is the series. It's by Jody Lynn Anderson. It's about this girl, Rosie Oaks. The series is about her battling these evil witches that control various aspects of the world and life because Rosie lives with her mother and her mother is very disconnected from everything and doesn't even necessarily recognize her own daughter. What Rosie doesn't know is that her mother sacrificed her memory. In fact, sort of all that thing that holds her to herself in order to protect her daughter from these powerful forces, from these witches. The last one is, I feel like it's a great family sharing book. It's Heroes Like Us by Anjali Q. Ralph. I hope I'm saying their name right. This is a pair of novellas. So I feel like that makes for good. If you're reading chapters, particularly at night at bedtime, it makes it a digestible, achievable goal. So you're not reading forever. This is the follow-up to the boy at the back of the class. 
And that book was a refugee tale. But I think that what's really great about, uh, I think that that was her debut. This follows that pattern of telling great stories of kids doing amazing things in the world, making an impact. And so this follows up on that. The characters from the first book are invited to see the queen as a result of what happened in that book. And they deal with an old foe. In the second story, they have to stop a heist. So those are my middle grade books. For older middle grade, maybe 10 to 14, I've got two and an asterisk, if that's all right. So Alan Gratz is well-known in Two Degrees, his newest book. He takes all of that ability to condense big kind of world events and places kids in the center of them in a way that helps make all these things digestible and understandable. This one, he's taking on climate change. And he has three kids scattered in different areas that are all being impacted by climate change in various ways and intertwines their stories. And I just, I've, I've liked him for a long, long time as a writer. And I'm so glad to have seen him, you know, become the, the kind of megastar that he is. The second one, I will admit, is not a pick of mine. This was so loved by my coworker, Sydney, that I have to mention it. So it's called The Star That Always Stays. And Sydney is the biggest Anne of Green Gables fan I've ever met. And uh, Sydney says that this reminds her of both the book, Anne of Green Gables, but also um, Anne with an E, the television series. It is about a young girl named Norvia, and she is Ojibwe. She lives in the country. Her mother remarries and moves to the city. And this takes place in 1914. When they move, her mother tells her, hey, don't talk about being Ojibwe. Mom on that, even at home with your new stepfather and stepbrother. And she doesn't know what to do with that. And so there's a lot of kind of finding a place to find her voice. So the last one is, uh, this is Miyazaki's, and it's called Shuna's Journey. Hayao Miyazaki is, you know, the famous filmmaker. He did Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind and Kiki's Delivery Service and... How's moving past was spirited away his yep spirit away yeah so many and he has done very few illustrated what we call graphic novels in japan it's manga and this is a folk tale in fact it's based on a tibetan folk tale but it's set in a kind of post-apocalyptic landscape So it's got that quality, I think, that a lot of people nowadays, when they think about telling, retelling a fairy tale, they leave out the parts that we don't like to think of, the dark parts. And this does not shy away from that darkness. It's about a young man trying to find his village in the valley where he lives is starved for resources. He's heard about this wheat, this magical wheat that is robust and grows readily. And he hears that it's at the end of the earth, essentially. And he goes on a quest for this and he encounters, you know, some of the dark parts of humanity, but at the same time, he maintains 
a care for the people that he runs into that are less fortunate. And spoiler, he, you know, ends up making his way back. If you've got a kid who's older now, but still has that love of Totoro or Spirited Away or any of those books that he has just opened up a world. And like those works, this opens up a world and invites you into an epic journey. It's just fantastic. It's that same kind of magic that he's put on screen. It's a good reminder for parents, too. I, I think it's becoming less so now, but for so long, people would go comics comics. I think it discounts the reluctant readers whose minds and hearts are being opened by that genre. I think, you know, uh, people who write off that genre don't know, for instance, like Tennessee Coates is now writing Black Panther. I mean, there are some unbelievably talented writers doing uh, graphic novels and, and manga. So please don't forget that on your list. Thank you so much for doing this, Justin. I'm so thankful. Thank you for coming on the show and for giving us some great ideas for Christmas. This is a great range of books. We love recommending books here at Little Shop of Stories, and it's our absolute favorite thing. Justin Calusi Estes of the Little Shop of Stories in Decatur, Georgia. And we hope you were able to use that pen and paper that we recommended you get out at the beginning, that we got some positive recommendations to give for Christmas. Because as we said all through, giving books for Christmas and receiving books at Christmas always wonderful. So we want to remind you of the people who make this podcast possible. And we want to wish you a Merry Christmas. And at the end, since we don't have a coda from any of the uh, six booksellers, Kate and I will each do our own coda. But first, those who made the program possible. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we want to give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Kevin Ryder, Ariel Chester, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. I would just say there's nothing better than finding your reading spot, curling up with a good book, and enjoying this Christmas season. And I would say happy holidays to you and yours, and happy reading too. <laughs>